Welcome back everyone. In this installment, we're gonna look at some issues in the rural professions. We want here to shape these issues as an area of study and to start thinking through some of the implications for how we go about working with non-metropolitan communities. Now, quite sadly, a lot of non-metropolitan communities face difficulties in accessing professionals. This has been the, the case perennially for as long as we've had records on this stuff, unfortunately. A lot of the reasons that are often put forward are things like uh, they're not seen as being places where professionals want to live and work. There's not enough access to services or a client base in some instances. There are often issues around, they perception-wise, they're about housing, uh, professional isolation. They might be the only person in their profession in the region. Even in high schools, you might be the only math teacher within 200 kilometers. Isolation from family and friends become a big one. If they're not from those areas, then they've got to move away from family and friends so they lose their social networks, which is an issue. And that perception that we've had in some of our discussions around rural places not being as desirable for them to live. Now, the irony here, of course, is that well, these rural places are home to about 20% of the Australian population and uh, larger percentages in many international contexts. So why is it that what is home for one body of the population is seen as not being a desirable place to live or work for another? Now that's the conundrum that we have here always, and there's always a tension for us to try to understand. It might go somewhere towards describing what it is to be a professional and the level of education and affluence that might come with that, and access to the lifestyle that that affords in some of these non-metropolitan places, or it might be part of the worldview that is cultivated in its production. Another element may be that a lot of the professions require a university degree, and that's only a certain portion of the population, and usually the more advantaged from the outset. So access to that or the professions may what be somewhat limited themselves there. I think, for instance, around access to becoming a teacher with recent changes put in place about the entry requirements of your school grades, which become a bit of an issue if, say, your school is gonna be half online, or the fact that a lot of disadvantage in rural communities and schools means you're unlikely maybe to get the entry requirement, even though we know through work like Joanne Reed and Simone White's that these teachers are likely to stay and make a difference in the communities. So there's issues around the, the architecture of the professions perhaps that become an issue. Another thing that's really important in this context is the nature of professional practice. As we've heard in some of our discussions, professional practice is distinct in rural contexts, and we'll hear this in two of the subsequent podcasts with Leslie Chenoweth and Michelle Lincoln on health, where they describe how it is to, to be a professional in a rural, or a rural health worker is a distinct form of practice. Now, I'm not going to dwell too much on that at this point, other than to raise that as an issue for us to have in mind. How do we go about delivering health services? How do we go about teaching students in a rural context? How is policing different? How is doing the law different? Now, these are things that we will grapple with, and we have a discussion later on about professional practice and rurality. In fact, that's actually one of the key end focuses of all these discussions. Over these earlier discussions, we've been talking about what is rural, what does it mean, what does it mean to be rural, 
what are some of the opportunities and challenges that exist? What's it mean to be a community in a rural context? These are all leading us to now where we are looking at some of the issues in professions, primarily focusing in the rest of this sort of session around human resource related issues, then moving into, well, how do we then move to that as a distinct form of practice? Because most rural practitioners, some we've heard from already, others we'll hear from shortly, talk about that distinct nature of practice. Ironically, that's not often recognized by the profession at large. It's usually advocates in those professions. For instance, my work in rural education is very much based around it being a distinct form of practice. And you would expect me to think that and say that because it's the work that I do. But on, in, on average, the profession doesn't see that. And the professional architecture doesn't support that. And that's a bit of an issue. When we come back to these perennial issues of staffing challenges, we've heard that, for instance, from Adrian Pickley talking about education, and we've heard it from our other visitors talking about their various uh, contexts, and even Mike Corbett in America, in Canada, sorry. Every day Adrian Pickley there was talking about, well, sometimes people don't want to live in these communities. And he was pitching the answer or the solution to the issue as we need to make the communities attractive. And I think that's a really important point. It goes a long way to getting to the issue that, well, if the community isn't attractive, the professionals won't come. Noting the irony that this is also already people's homes. So what are some of the issues and challenges? I can talk here from an educational perspective, and I'll be putting a second podcast up shortly from Professor Lizzie Chenoweth from Griffith and Professor Michelle Lincoln from the University of Canberra, both looking at social work and subsequently health with Michelle Lincoln. Now, the work I've done has been around education and staffing issues. What we see is that there's a perennial problem in getting teachers to rural schools. And that's usually around things such as those that we've already mentioned. Professional isolation, uh, social isolation, access to services, and so forth. The key things are sort of fall into two kind of brackets, the sort of social disincentives and the professional disincentives. Social disincentives include things like access to produce. Uh, might sound interesting because a lot of rural places produce produce. But getting fresh produce back out to them in a variety is actually often a challenge and can sometimes cost more because of transport costs. A big one that often comes up is employment for a, a spouse or a partner who's not a teacher because the teacher often uh, they've got their job but not the partner. And quality housing. Often a lot of number of the departments have housing bureaus that provide housing. Uh, there may not be demand to have rental accommodation in some communities or in communities, particularly mining communities, uh, the rent is exorbitant. It's not actually a cheap option because the, uh, the mine work throws the price of rents right up. Isolation from family and friends is probably the biggest one. People miss their family and friends if they're not from that place. And I guess that's understandable and hard to get around. Um, and the access to the broader services um, that you might want, arts, culture, even accessing, say, other specialist doctors or other specialist support be really issues. I think another one I'll just mention there is the idea of loss of privacy. People don't, sometimes don't like the living in a fishbowl notion. Other people really enjoy that. I must admit I've never had an issue with it myself. 
those sort of social issues can often then coalesce around those uh, negative social aspects that we have. So we have that social discourse around uh, rural places being difficult or far away or challenging, and that can impact the psyche of the teacher, I guess. When it comes to the professional disincentives, you know, these are you know, people join the profession to do their work. And if we can do something about the, the social ones, then the professional ones kick in as well. So that's things like lack of support staff, smaller school sizes often, which means you might be teaching across a range of years or you might be teaching across a range of subjects in the secondary school in addition to what you are trained in. The constant staff turnover is one that gets people down because there's no continuity that comes with that. Uh, there's always new people, always change, always reinvention and not a consistency. Professional isolation is one here. It's that ability to communicate or, and, and liaise with someone in your field. Now, in a primary school, you might have two or three primary teachers. That's a small network, but it's a network. The nearest primary school then might be 80 kilometres away. So not as easy to, to get together as essentially and uh, share your programs and debrief. But in a high school, for instance, you might be the only geography teacher. And the nearest town with a high school or central school, which is a K-12 school with a secondary department, might be 120, 200 kilometres away. And that can be a real, real challenge. Um, getting consultancy and support from the department can be a challenge because it's hard to get to. It takes time, it costs more. On the other side, that can actually be a bonus because you're out of sight and you can do things, you can innovate and do new ideas. Um, teaching outside of your expertise is, is an issue. So teaching outside of my area in Hizzy, something that was a regular part of my work. But the biggest one, I guess, is technology. That while we have technology, the bandwidth still isn't uh, up to scratch. And you'll see that actually in a conversation that we'll put up shortly. But it's the access to casuals that really constantly hits home. So we can say, we can in-service you, we can send you to conferences and events, but often you get a day's relief with an with a in-service event. But it might take you a day to get there and a day to get back. So you've got three days, extra costs. You need to travel, so you need to stay overnight. You can't drive morning and, morning and night because of the risk of kangaroos and so forth, or you've got to travel long distances in regional transport, which can cost significantly more than other people's costs to, uh, to, tra to travel. And I think I see a colleague of mine out in the far west quoting $1,800 to go to an event in Sydney, just flights. So Then you need the casual. You need the casual for those days, and there's often not a labour supply of casual teachers to take your class. So it costs more, you don't get the time, you're away, for in your class and you can't have anyone backfilling in the casual. These things really become massive impediments. Now, what can we do? Well, those professional ones are things that departments can address. They can address them with appropriate resourcing. They can staff schools appropriately. They can add extra resources. They can add extra time to training courses. Um, and you would think they'd have an incentive to do so. Now, they tinker at this stuff constantly, but in reality, if these are still issues, it would suggest they haven't been overcome. And it might seem a little bit strange when it's really a matter of departmental resourcing. So it comes down to resourcing formulas and what's seen as being just and fair when they share resources across a broader, a broader um, public system. So that's one that you would think is easily solvable, but doesn't really seem to be. 
The big ones about getting them in the first place are the social disincentives. This is where we have things like transfer schemes where you can be guaranteed employment elsewhere. That's ironically encourages you to leave to get a job at a place where you might prefer to work, but at least gets people there in the first place is the uh, counter argument to that. But things like paying people's hex, cash bonuses have become big after a minimum period of service, and subsidies. So there's big rental subsidies. So often you can live in some very um, remote or regional remote areas where a lot of your teacher housing is actually subsidised up to nearly 90% by the state. You often get some cash bonuses for working in some locations that are further apart. You might get some extra leave in some parts of the country or access to sabbatical leave. Um, and you get uh, other, other cash type benefits to support the costs of groceries or the costs of uh, provision of, of heating and cooling and so forth. So there are things that can, can be done there, but overall still, they haven't significantly changed things. And that's, I guess, a little bit surprising. We've been tinkering mostly on the human resource side about those provisions, but they haven't had a massive impact. Where does it leave us? Well, I'm not really sure actually, because it seems like most of these things should be solvable with, um, with support from governments, but they still don't change the fact that well, people still, you need people first who want to go and work in this context. And that probably seems to be the ongoing challenge, I would suggest. Now, we've looked at this sort of work and rural teachers for quite a while. Um, some of the issues we've been looking at is how how we prepare teachers for these contexts. And this is one of the big themes in particularly rural educational research. It's been that notion that to teach in a rural place is different. You need to relate with students different, you have multi-age classes, but you're drawing on their different social and cultural understandings in the way that you structure your lessons, the examples that you use, and the ideas that you draw upon. Go back to the old fundamentals of psychology, back to Dewey and, and educational psychology, where people learn from what they know, and what they know is contextually bound. So that's often something that sounds really simple, but a lot of our education, our teachers don't come from those contexts, so they struggle to make that, that connection. What it also means is, is that they're drawing on uh, default examples of their lived experience that isn't the rural. And we see that in textbooks, and we see it in that planned questions and so forth. And that reinforces difference to the, to the kids. You see that a lot of the research in this space, you know, there's been work around incentives to attract and retain teachers and try to encourage them. Send them out on prac visits um, and is really supportive, except it costs a lot because people have part-time jobs and don't want to go. But even when you offer prac visits, sometimes people, the uptake is often really low. Things like actually preparing teachers to teach in rural contexts. And the major research projects in this space um, over the last 10 years have all been about now, what is it that, that we can do to make teachers want to come and stay in communities and how do we prepare them for it? And that ironically then hasn't influenced the professional architecture. You know, that's been what's been researched. So we need to do things slightly differently, I think, to change the professional architecture. It's something on us as researchers to find new ways to have an impact in that space. We can see with rural school leaders that there's a distinct issue around rural school leadership. And in that context, it's really important. What we see there is that there is a distinct group of people who work in rural schools. 
and they move their career through the various leadership levels. And the issues they respond to significantly are around the difference of working in rural places. So even the leaders using the staff in Australia's school survey highlight that difference is something really important. There's also a group of people who use it as a career progression. You can see they come in and out of the rural to get their next step up, get to that level of the school leadership, pop it back to another location and come back to get their next step. I guess if they're committed to and coming back to rural places, that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it does suggest there is a distinctiveness about rural places in that subset of the population who's working through there. One of the key studies in this space is, also, is the Terra Nova project, which Joe Reed's article in her discussion drew upon. And that was about looking at successful rural schools and why people stay there. And that was all about school community relations. And again, that reinforced that notion that working in a rural place is different. That relational element, having the school and community on the same page, work together to create a really supportive environment where the school and the community were working for the same goal and everyone felt welcome and belonging. Now, you'd think that'd be the case everywhere, but I guess it's getting to that distinction of focusing on academic success and advancement, which may be slightly more predominant in some metropolitan locations, perhaps, or maybe it's dominant in rural locations, but it is itself dependent upon the relationship more than it might be in other contexts. That's something we probably need to explore to tease out those relationships in a little bit more detail. For me, when it comes down to thinking about how we do this stuff and how we address some of these issues, it's really about four areas. Clearly, we've got to deal with the social. We've got to provide ways of helping teachers who aren't from rural places stay connected. It can be through things like extra leave, um, providing support to visit family and friends, etc., and even a bit of technology can help there somewhat. Economic. If it's going to cost them more and be in their position, they're not going to do it. That even means driving back to see those family and friends is going to cost more. And a number of jurisdictions give you a, a reimbursement for one or two trips a year. So those sort of things would probably need to be upped a little bit more to encourage teachers to stay there. And maybe, maybe the cash incentive will have an impact. It hasn't had a huge impact yet, uh, but still can't be dismissed I guess and they're pretty pragmatic the social and economic issues the social issue I think goes a little bit there what Adrian Piccoli talked about if we can make these communities attractive then hey that's awesome and people might want to stay there and move there but what's attractive to one is not attractive to another we've got to keep that in mind so maybe it's about getting the people who find those places attractive and giving them the opportunity to work there and better identifying them that might be a, a better option in the middle term anyway. Two things that don't get dealt a lot with that I think are really important is that rural difference one. It has been a dominant theme throughout the research, but it's a dominant theme when you talk to rural practitioners, rural teachers, rural health workers, legal professionals, police, they all talk about it being different. And not as it being necessarily bad, just different. That difference is something we seem to struggle with in our public policy and our professional architectures. So what exactly do we mean by that? I think here we need to hark back to our discussions around what it is to be rural and how we define rural in a modern world. And actually one of the reasons we started off there was to get to this point. If the rural is a multifaceted concept, then the way that professions are structured as being uniform across contexts would seem to be somewhat problematic. 
because the rule is clearly distinct to other places, and the rules the rule rules are distinct to each other. But we don't seem to have a way of uh, working with that in our architectures of the professions. Now that's something I think we need to work at, and that's a serious challenge that we need to really dig our teeth into, because I think that's where a lot of the issues are. And then the one for me, bit of an elephant in the room perhaps, or mildly controversial, is the issue of professionalism. If the rural is distinct, there's a distinct rural professionalism here. And we need to value and engage that. Now, what does that mean? Well, we're getting to there that issue of professional practice in rural places. And that's something we'll be focusing on in a couple of podcasts' time. But that notion of well, quality teachers who are quality teachers in that context, who can work with the knowledges of that context and work with the communities in those contexts, who inevitably base their knowledge on that rural difference, may be helped by the rural social space model, as Joanne discussed. But it's a distinct form of professional practice that is rigorous and accountable to quality measures as we may set them, but they're quality indicators that are set within the contexts rather than being imposed by elsewhere without an understanding of that context. I think that's really important. And what I want to get away from there is, you know, it's not the old, you know, measure and account scenario. It's understand this place and teaching in this place. It's not, and it's trying to work against what the incentives that we could imply for the social and uh, professional issues, economic issues, we can give them more money, we can give people more leave, we can make it more attractive in that compensatory sense. But we don't want to attract the wrong people. If we attract the wrong people, we're not actually encouraging quality. And if we have an ongoing shortage, then there's a temptation to have any warm body teach in, a, in that context. And that's really dangerous, because it means we only get the people that are willing to go. And we've got to ask why could be that they're really committed to these contexts, and I certainly hope that's the case. But sometimes it's the only place people can work as well, and, or hide. You hear these sort of stories when you're out and about in places, and that's something we need to work against. So if we can reclaim that professionalism in education, in health sectors and so forth, I think it's a really positive thing. And that leads me to my last point about these professions. Rural health is a distinct form of practice. It has a its own training uh, approach has rural health training colleges. This is not something we have in education. Why not? Even the other professions, police, law, going right through the things that exist in a community, accountants, social workers, business developers, etc. Maybe they don't need a distinct training regime, but something that's in every rural community. Okay? Every community has a school. Not everyone has a hospital, most will have a health clinic, but the rural health clearly has this notion of distinct forms of practice, something we might want to think about in terms of education, for instance. Now, in our upcoming podcast, we talked to Professor Leslie Chenoweth and Griffith about social workers and social work practice in rural places. And the podcast following that, talked to Professor Michelle Lincoln from the University of Canberra around rural health. Until then.